Well, well. <laughs> <laughs> we're here to start talking about what does it mean to be human? How are we human? I don't know. We're still figuring it out. We're figuring a lot of things out. I'm Craig. <laughs> and I'm Carla. And we're trying to understand being human from the perspective, perspective of God's story in the Bible. It's more than just being a species like Homo sapiens. We think it's about community, about relationships, and about welcoming. We're figuring it out, still. So, join us as we do. Because we're not holier than you. Oh, I didn't want that to rhyme. Carla may have no idea because she may not listen to the All That's Holy Blue Collar podcast. I'm not a big podcast listener, and here I am doing a podcast. There, there you go. <laughs> so, and who are we doing a podcast? You are. I'm Carla. I'm Craig. And, and I'm Tom. we are not holier than you. <laughs> and we're visiting with our, uh, our friend, a local uh, theologian, philosopher, uh, philosopher, philosopher of science, uh, theologian, open and relational theologian. Thomas J. Ord, otherwise known as Tom. So, Tom, it's good to and have you this evening. This is one case when you have a guest that you truly are holier than your guest. <laughs> so i live with her i can tell you things i can tell you about him <laughs> oh, i love it well so I, oh, go, oh, ahead. go ahead we don't give up why don't you jump in oh i was just gonna say i heard you have a new book coming out or it I, is out you know i just finished with the first draft yesterday Okay. I've been working right in front of me, in fact, uh, the, going through edits so I can have a second draft. Uh, it's an introduction to open relational theology written at, according to uh, my little uh, pro writing aid, you know, those those things you use for grammar. And it tells you what grade level you're writing at. Oh, <laughs> an eighth grade reading level, which was just what I was aiming for. Nice. Perfect. Yeah. Considering right. the newspaper is sixth grade, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's cool. So um, I think Craig sent you some information to let you know kind of what we've been doing. And I uh, did not look that over. So I'll let Craig well, kind you, of introduce You're, you're familiar with it. Yeah. But we, we, got, we got started on this in a couple of different ways, at least in my mind, was with incredible polarities that exist, it seems, especially in, in U.S. culture, but it's also happening worldwide. In fact, you could all maybe go all the way back to the Balkan revolutions and, and civil wars where people just broke up and created, um, exacerbated the polarities or the differences and, and became, you know, violently separated against one another. That kind of mm -hmm. balkanization seems to continue. And we've seen it happen in our own country and it happens elsewhere as well. Which how do you how do you stem the tide of that? What's an what's another narrative? What's another story mm. that can have uh, an effect of of calling us back together? And and one of the things that caught my attention was Genesis 1, 26 and twenty seven, mm. and that um, you know given given the translation, I was using the Common English translation, which does the non gender language. You know it that that God was not creating mankind in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, but was creating humankind. Mm -hmm. And that's where the image of God was dwelling in humankind. And thinking about that 
kind of totality rather than the individual aspects of the of the image of God kind of put this hypothesis in 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 our minds that perhaps the image of God is what becomes more fully revealed in relationship mm-hmm. you know because we can talk about you know seeing the image of God in another person or another individual and and I think that's not really how I'm choosing to interpret that Genesis passage. It's in the, the totality of the combined humanity. And then the rest of the gospel, rest of the Bible story is of all these separations, you know, through Abraham, all these people will be blessed, you know, through the prophets, uh, they will all be brought back to Zion. Uh, And then at at the conclusion of the story at New Jerusalem, every tongue, nation, tribe will, will be together. Uh, there and so there, there is this amazing desire that God has for God's children. God desires that is that that the children will all be brought back together. You know, and mm-hmm. and, and so these these poles that we continue to, you know, find ways to separate and distance ourselves from others because of different ideologies, um, you know, runs so contrary to that little piece of the story. There's other stories that it runs contrary to, but I, I, that that issue of the image of God just really caught my attention. Yeah, yeah. Well, you didn't know this, but I um I just published an essay in a book that came out of scholarly essays on the Imago Dei, and so there we go. There we go. <laughs> been thinking about this, and in this particular volume, they ask uh, scientists to write on it, theologians, biblical scholars, and they ask me to write an essay on what they called, actually, maybe they didn't call it, maybe I called it this. Anyway, the name for my my position was relational love, a relational love view of the image of God. So it sounds like very similar to what you're, you're uh, pointing toward. And, and one of the reasons you're, you're, you, you came to mind was, I think the open and relational theological perspective might lend some an, another view on this story and how it pans out, but also your earlier work on the theology of love. And, and uh, you know, giving love its proper due in a systematic theology. So it's, you know, it is a substantial element. It's, it's more than a characteristic. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, that's to me, it, it fits naturally, but that's just the way I kind of think. Um, I think when a lot of people sit down to talk about the image of God, um, they look for a particular capacity or a thing or, you know, first of all, probably when you're young, you think of the image of God as the the form of God, like a body like God. And then you're told, no, God doesn't have a body. And so then the next step is, okay, maybe God is a rational being, like we're rational beings. And, you know, that's what Aquinas went with and a lot of smart people. Or maybe God's, uh, since God's creator, we can create. And so that's what it means to be made in the image of God. Or relationality or love which you know i'm quite partial to i don't think scripture like gives us well i'll say it stronger than that there's no historical consensus of what the imago dei means right <laughs> so it's open to all kinds of interpretations <laughs> so my notion of of coming at it is not to think first of all okay what are the capacities we have that might be like god my kind of approach is to say, okay, what do I think fundamentally God is about? And what of those attributes might we have in common? And um, that to some people, just starting like that is anathema, is, you know, it's like the, the worst thing you could do. You're making God in your image, they'll say, you know, or, uh, 
in scholarly circles, you know, you're, you're um, replacing the creator with the uh, creature and all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But I think there's really good biblical reasons beyond that particular passage to think that we have some characteristics like God. And since I think love comes first in God, I say, why not start with that? So, so have you, have you, what are, what are some of those, you mentioned a few in, you know, kind of in general, the uh, pushback you received. Um, how do you, how do you respond? I, you know, really like in a scholarly way, but then yeah. how do you respond to the person in the pew who, who, who hears that from, from preachers, teachers, or, you know, and, and now that becomes kind of the widespread response. Yeah. I mean, how, yeah. how do you ease people into this idea that, you know, it's really not that bad to say this. Yeah. Well, in, strangely enough, I'll just say the typical person in the pew, when they think of what God's like on this issue, I think they're closer to the truth than the typical trained theologian from Cambridge or, you know, someplace like that, because okay. the typical trained theologian has these assumptions about God that come from uh, the tradition that I think are just flat wrong. Let me give you a two of them. Actually, let me give you three of them. Here's one <laughs> assumption. God is unaffected by anything we do whatsoever. That's right. called impassibility. Right. Every per Well, Avery, that's strong. Almost every person I know in my local church thinks God is affected by what they do. God listens mm -hmm. to their prayers. God is angry when they sin. God's proud when they, they love that they, you know, they can, we sing songs like bless the Lord. Oh, my soul. That sounds like we're actually making a difference to God. Right. And mm -hmm. I think we ought to affirm that and reject uh, that idea that God can't be affected. Second idea. The classical tradition says God stands outside of time and can't have any experiences like we do of time. But if you read the Bible, the God of the Bible is engaging in experiential motion, moment by moment. And what we think about love is so tied up with our experience of time. If we then think God is loving and then say God is timeless, oh, your head starts to explode because of these contradictions, tendencies. But if you say God experiences time like us, then God's love can be giving and receiving moment by moment, just like ours is. And so once again, you have these kind of analogies that naturally arise. And the third one would be um, most classical theologians think that God is in all ways unchanging. Immutable is the, the technical word. Mm -hmm. uh, but the problem with that is that time and time again in scripture, we have God having a change of mind. God plans to do X and then decides to do Y in response to what's happening in the world. And it's hard for me, at least, to imagine what love would be like if it was absolutely non-relational, unchanging, and timeless. So to wrap it all into the image of God, if we think God loves in ways like we love, then maybe there's something about that image that fits with the logic of love. Your, your last one made me think of, and oh gosh, I don't want to say the wrong Bible story. <laughs> I, I'm thinking uh, Nineveh. 
was yeah. Jonah, wasn't it? Yeah, Jonah. that's yeah, yeah. that's a classic story of God having a change of mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and Jonah just going off and pouting about it. <laughs> you didn't do what you said you would. Yeah, I mean, you know, in a in a in a more immature kind of a way, rather than okay, this isn't the way God is working in this particular instance in a yeah. more mature response to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a great example. Or just take most of the covenants God makes, you know, yeah. uh, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and seek my face, I will do lays out these things. Right. If they don't, I will pluck them out of the land I gave them, which sounds like the future is open. God is related. What will happen is going to depend on this real loving relationship or lack of love of creatures don't love, but there's real relationship involved there. And I think that just makes so much sense of scripture and our common experiences of love. There's a, there's a reciprocity, a give and take in those covenants. Yeah, the if the if then conditionality. Yeah. Where God has to be it, the way the way it's worded, God has to be prepared to alter uh God's actions. Right. God's yep. course has to change in response. Yep. Um it one of the one of the images that comes out of the 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 garden in, in Genesis is this level of partnership with God. Mm-hmm. and that there is a there's actually just an innate covenant at creation mm-hmm. that is described as far as what the partnership looks like and what the role of the different participants are mm-hmm. and that breaks down and then new covenants come in <clears throat> and some make explicit the con- conditionality some don't have conditions either but you know god does respond that that intimate connection well, even in that first chapter, you've got partnership with non-humans going on. God says, you know, let the plants bring, or let the fish, what let the waters bring forth fish. I can't quote yeah, it all, yeah. <laughs> but you get what I mean. And, you know, right. and he saw that it was good. And then he said, let these people do that, or these creatures do that, and saw that it was good. So there's partnership right at the get-go. Is that, do you think that's, well, I, I don't know. It doesn't say it, but is there is the image of God also in other aspects of creation other than human beings? I know human beings are uh, traditionally like we're the pinnacle of creation, which puts us in a position to belittle everything else, waste it, misuse it, <laughs> etc. Yeah. Is there a way to think of the image of God that goes beyond uh, uh, just human that's the most controversial part of this essay I just wrote because I well, say, <laughs> give, give us a teaser. Give us a teaser. Well, I say, you know, even if you go with some of the more traditional notions of what the Imago Dei is, like let's say rationality, well, other creatures are have some measure of reason. They're not as smart as humans, but they can be pretty ingenious sometimes. Or if you go with the capacity to create, well. Beavers create dams, bees create hives, and there's creating going all, all over the place in the non-human world. Um, you going to jump in there? <laughs> I was just going to say, and, and I just finished reading a book, and the creation of the hive is so amazingly is complex. Is that right? Uh, wow. Uh, this kind of blows my mind. So yeah, I never quite thought of the things that you're saying before. And even if you go, even if you go with relational love, which I do, why think that, 
you know, mother bears aren't relationally loving their cubs. Or, you know, I just came from the green belt with my granddaughter and we see ducks and ducklings, you know, why not think there's real nurturing, maybe not to the complexity that we think humans ought to be able to love, but there's still something going on there. So I don't want to make a definitive statement that the image of God is, you know, in every living creature, but I'm open to that possibility. Maybe there's a measure of complexity. Maybe quarks don't have the image of God. I don't know, but um, <laughs> that's going down small. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm okay with extending it to much more broadly than humans. Okay. And, and in God's ability to create, I mean, and since we've been made to be creative people ourselves or or as humans having that um greater amount perhaps of the image of god when we create something there's a little bit of ourselves in it yeah you think about it whether it's as an artist or a potter um putting knitting or you know working with yarn or sewing you're putting something of yourself into whatever it is you're creating and could God not have done that also with the Great creatures? Insight. Yeah, I like you, that. I like you that. can put a Monet up against a Rembrandt and you can tell the difference. There's something about the artist that's in the art. Yeah, perhaps. yeah. And I'm not trying to say that God is in those animals and that God's spirit exists in those animals or in the rocks or trees, but that there's something of God's spirit uh, spark i guess in there that that enlivens all of that somehow some way yeah yeah i like that you know in mm-hmm. in academic circles we d- debate this idea of panentheism right which says that all things are in god and so much of the debate comes down to what you mean by that word in what does it mean to be in and i most people i think they think of being in like this red cup that i'm holding up and mm-hmm. it has a, a tea bag. It happens to be in the red cup. They think yeah. of in this being like substantive, like God's the universal garbage can and we're the trash inside it. Or something <laughs> like <that>. <laughs> <laughs> but um, panentheism as a concept emerged from the open and relational community, not right. uh, the kind of classical view. And the open and relational community thinks that God is an experiential being. And just like you guys are currently in my experience because we're having this conversation Mm -hmm. and uh, all the things that have happened to me in the past are in my experience because they've affected me. So we are in God's experience. In fact, all things are in God's experience if panentheism is right, because God is affected by every last thing that occurs. And, and this is where it gets really wild. If creation is experiential, then God is in us in the sense that God affects our experience moment by moment. So it's not like God, you know, I remember as a kid in Sunday school, we said Jesus is in our hearts. And I thought, you know, do you open a door and you, he's like sitting on the couch in my aorta or something. (laughs) (laughs) But what we really, I think we're trying to say is that in our experience, God is present, active, and even causal. Going back on that a little deeper, so God as creator um, experiences the creation, not as an outsider, but intimately experiencing that creation through 
the creation. I mean, it almost puts the creator and the experience of the creation kind of on in different places. I'm not sure how to describe that. Yeah. I like to say there's a difference between God, the creator and creation. There's so, so mm -hmm. I'm not melding them into one. Right. Right. But because God is omnipresent, a very common view among theists, and God is experiential, common view among open relational folks, then the God who's everywhere is experienced by everything and affects everything. So there's this intimate relationship moment by moment from everything from societies to people to elephants to dogs to amoeba to quarks. From top to bottom, there's this kind of intimacy without collapsing the distinction between God and creation. Well, and if you think about that being effect, or if I'm if I'm understanding correctly, you know, Jesus said um, that God knows the number of hairs on our head and knows when the sparrow falls. Right. Um, thinking about that, and then thinking about those quirks, um, the the. Um, Oh gosh, I can't think of the name now. The, the Hadron um, Collider. Collider, yeah. And, you know, breaking down the particle so to so small, saying this is the God particle and it's what holds us all together. Yeah. And it's just amazing to hear some of these people in, in uh, physics talking about God in matter. Yeah. Yeah, there. The I, I agree. I found it so find it so fascinating. It's it's almost like they're grasping for metaphysical um, concepts that transcend what's visibly present there to make sense of how it all fits together. And I think we all kind of do that. Some yeah. people do it more than others, but just that they're doing it kind of explicitly is just very interesting. You, you've yeah. written on the God particle, haven't you? Some, not a yeah. lot. It's, I don't particularly like the name, the God right. particle, because I yeah. think God is everywhere. But uh, right. but I, I like the idea that they're grasping for some kind of language to talk about what's going on at that level. Yeah, and it seems like if scientists are able to see things at smaller and smaller levels, whether it be in biology or physics or out in space and uh, astrophysics, they're there's just this deeper and deeper sense in many, many uh, scientists that there's something more, there's yeah. something greater than us. And how do we, yeah, as you said, try to grasp it, but then also being able to accept it, I think maybe is another. I think that's aspect. a great way to put it. Yeah. You know, when I look at the scientific literature and the language that's used, that sounds theological or at least metaphysical, um, I see a really wide range. Sometimes a scientist, take a, a physicist like Bill Phillips or William Phillips, who won a Nobel Prize. He's a very kind of traditional Baptist. And when he talks about God and creation, it sounds like what you, you hear in a Sunday school, you know, in a Baptist church. <laughs> you got other people who use these really abstract language it doesn't sound very christian-like but they're grasping for these big ideas and they use things words like energy or consciousness or uh, entanglement and and they're 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 
they're they're reaching for concepts to describe the reality before them that goes beyond what we can see, touch, taste, sense, smell with our five senses. And I think we ought to be open to all of it, um, um, even if it's language we're not used to. Oh, I was just going to say, I remember going to a conference, oh, many years ago, probably 18-ish or so more years ago when Len Sweet was here in the area. Oh, um, it was here in Meridian, as I recall, and he was talking about physics and physicists, and he said, and they're calling, they, they call it the grand organizing designer, G-O-D, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I thought, oh, interesting, you know, yeah. there's that something organized it, something created, designed, and I thought, oh, that that really opened me up to not being afraid of science. Well, I'm not that I was afraid of science before, yeah. but so many people were seemingly afraid of science that mm. as someone who's, who has a bit of a background in it, I thought, well, how do I approach this? And to learn more and more has really given me a greater foundation. Cool. You know, I just endorsed a book that is one of the best books written for the general public on science and faith. I'm going to find this. I'm going to go to my uh, inbox here, find this woman's name. Janet, I remember is her first name, I think. Oh, uh, and it's cool. going to be published. Janet Kellogg. That's it. Hmm. It's going to be published by, um, uh, b -b -b uh, by Erdman's. Oh, huh. uh, yeah. It's called, Baby Dinosaurs on the Ark, question mark. <laughs> <laughs> Janet Kellogg Ray. And it's just so well written. She's a good writer, which, you know, you don't always get that in science and theology discussions, <laughs> but she is just fantastic. Uh, so here is uh, the, the subtitle. I'm, I'm, I'm promoting her book. I don't even know who she is, but <laughs> <laughs> she says this is the, uh, the blurb, uh, the, not that I wrote, but that the publicist wrote. Uh, a significant number of Americans, especially evangelical Christians, believe Earth and humankind were created in their present form sometime in the last 10,000 years or so. The rationale being that this is presumably the story told in the book of Genesis. Within that group, any threatening evidence that suggests otherwise is rejected or, when possible, retrofitted into a creationist worldview. But can this uncomfortable blend of biblical literalism and pseudoscience hold up under scrutiny? Is it tenable to believe that the Grand Canyon was formed not millions of years ago by gradual erosion, but merely thousands of years ago by a great flood? Were there really baby dinosaurs with Noah on his ark? Janet Ray, a science educator, a science educator who grew up a creationist, doesn't want other Christians to have to do the exhausting mental gymnastics she did early <laughs> in her life, working through the findings of a range of fields, including geology, paleontology, and biology. She shows how a literal interpretation of the book of Genesis simply doesn't mesh with what we know to be reality. Anyway, here I am plugging a book from a woman I don't know. It's not even available, but when it's out, man, I really encourage people to get a copy. That yeah. sounds good. Be, what, what, a couple of things that, that and I, I hope you don't mind, but kind of having a free flow conversation, yeah. right? <laughs> you know, like a set of questions we had to get to. But 
you know, it's 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 expanded this idea of of God's image of being this eminent, not just the transcendent, but this eminent kind of reality that's available to to experience in creation. Yeah, uh, and 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 which then opens up an awareness to to the the witness or the testimony of science, mm-hmm. which is ac- actually a piece of that. It, yes. And it moves the image of God little bit, or I shouldn't say out of, but but gives it another dimension that's uh, scientific, that's experiential, um, concrete, or you know, it's it's this world, uh, our, our experience of creation. So it it really pulls it out of this theoretical. Gosh, what is the image? And yeah, I think it challenges us perhaps to look around us and think, yeah, these are these are aspects. This is this is god's image like an artist in what's been created yeah i totally agree that's that's uh, that's that's beautiful well you said it (laughs) (laughs) not as eloquently as you did craig okay okay i'm the preacher (laughs) well what else has kind of uh been rooting around in your mind about the imago day and how to maybe help one another see that uh in it's to see it in one another and to honor the imago in each person that we meet yeah you know i was actually that question and what something craig craig said earlier reminded me of a book i read 20 years ago called malcolm and martin in america and it was all about Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and their divergent approaches to the race question. Mm-hmm. Martin was all about unity. Let's see what we have in common. I was thinking about the Imago Day. We're all made the Imago Day, so we all ought to treat each other with dignity, respect, love. Uh, whereas Malcolm came at it with, look, there's diversity. We're really different. You can't mm-hmm. squeeze us into your little system and your little uh, box. And there's truth to both of those, I think. Yeah. Like, I don't want to get rid of either one. How are we going to affirm unity without slipping into uniformity? How are we going to affirm uh, diversity without disintegrating into this balkanization that you mentioned earlier? And I don't have like the answer to this. Otherwise, I, you know, I'd be in <laughs> some place of authority, I'm sure right now. <laughs> but I know that there's this attention there that I want to hold on to. I think we ought to see one another as made in God's image, as having real value, that we share something deeply in common, not only with other humans, but with other creatures as well, while also profoundly respecting the differences we have between one another and seeing them as not necessarily bad, but good in most instances, maybe there's some bad, but most instances, this diversity is very positive. That's my, my goal, at least. I don't know if I always do that well. Go ahead. Well, uh, one of the things that, that is in my mind from the very beginning of this is the connection of the Imago Dei to the Missio Dei. And I hadn't been thinking of them in the Latin. And then when I say them in the Latin, it's like, oh yeah, they sound like they belong together. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, that you know, elements of shalom, you know, the, the, the hopes we have for the, you know, for the fullness of the kingdom uh, of God. Uh, these, I don't think Imago Dei and Missio Dei are 
are separate. They, they're, mm. they're, they're, and so if, you know, if we want that place where Malcolm and Martin can sit down and create together this, this, you know, possible future, you know, that, I think that's God's mission is to make those kinds of conversations and then, you know, go beyond conversations into practices. I'm just figuring out how to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I like that a lot. Imago Dei and Missio Dei. If, if we think the Imago Dei is something like the capacity to express relational love, and we think the Missio Dei is God's work to inspire, call, um, empower us to love in the way we've been created as as capable of loving then mm -hmm. i see them you know matching really nicely together in fact i'll, I'll throw in another latin phrase here imitatio day <laughs> we can yeah. imitate this god yeah. when we yeah. love <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah well what i was gonna say and kind of going back to i it, just got three volumes of books now to write this is awesome Thank <laughs> <you>. <laughs> <laughs> um uh going back to your you're talking about you know uh Malcolm and, and Martin and the unity and the diversity and it, respecting differences. The one thing I would wonder for people that we meet who might, who we might say, well, Hey, we want to respect who you are. We respect that you are different. We have different maybe ideas of how to do things, but there's always that little thing that gets kind of pushed in, uh, with people who are respectful of differences and it's like, Oh, well, you're, you're accepting of, of everything. You're as if that's uh, a problem. Extreme yeah, tolerance. Problem. Kind of thing. Yeah. And I, yeah. I'm not coming up with the word right now. I'm sorry. It's late. I'm tired. <laughs> well, we had, we, we, we know, I, I, I now know of several people who've been criticized because they love too much. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and the criticism comes from churches. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which reflects a, um, a level of acceptance of people who are different. Uh, it could be gender expression. It could be um, political ideology. You know, it could be a variety of things. Yeah. But it's just like, we, you just love too much. I, I have more sympathy with the people who are, I'll just call them more conservative voices than I used to have. Um, mm. I used to be like, come on now, just get along <laughs> everything. you know, you can do whatever you want. Diversity is king, but you know, I have to look at my own life and know that like, you know, if someone says my lifestyle choice is torturing babies, I'm not going to say, Hey, you know, do what you yeah. do, you know? Right. Yeah. You do you. So, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. I have certain moral uh, standards, moral intuitions that make me think that torturing babies is wrong. Now, how do we affirm that, but also allow a great deal of diversity for things that we don't like aesthetically? Like I think the LGBTQ stuff ultimately comes down to aesthetics, ultimately comes down to it just seems yucky when two men are having sex or two women are having sex. I think that's fundamental. It's not Bible stuff, even though like it's thrown in there. And those of us who are heterosexual, which I am, um, I can understand why it might seem yucky, aesthetically unpleasing to think about hmm. two men making out, having sex, whatever. 
because you have no uh, affectation you have no, no draw to, to experience yeah i'm not appealed to I'm, men don't appeal to me i don't get sexually excited when i watch two men kiss which i might you know with uh, women but that's another thing well you <laughs> 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 yeah you're right but that that's a good example though because it's my attraction to the opposite sex that right. excites me so uh -huh. all that to say it's tough sometimes to distinguish between what are real moral intuitions that we ought to hold on to yeah. and these aesthetic preferences that we ought to be open to people seeing and acting and having, you know, sexual differences and diversity. Um, you know, I know that's a hot topic. Maybe you guys didn't want to get into that, but um, <laughs> that's the, I think the example of our time, like how do mm -hmm. we deal with that question? I think one of the one of the real key issues, and yeah, we're not going to go into that issue, but I think it's a fantastic issue yeah. uh, to discuss, just because of the incredibly powerful way it affects everyone's life. Uh, but to make that difference between, you know, some some level of moral reasoning over and against some kind of aesthetic uh, response, yeah. or, and and yeah, yeah. A lot of times aesthetics becomes what guides the moral uh, oh, conversation definitely. rather than real moral mm. foundations. Yeah. And then, yeah. and then, like you said, throw a little Bible in there to, yeah. well, let's to satisfy a, the, to satisfy the aesthetics more than to satisfy the moral reasoning. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Instead of going LGBTQ, which is the hot topic and a lot of people have diverse opinions. Let's pick on a, something that was hot 30 years ago, rock and roll in church. <laughs> like, you know, are you going to have worship music with drums and guitars? Yeah, that was the big thing. Now, right. was that a moral issue? I think most of us can look at that and say that was aesthetics. Some people like the hymns. They like the way that, you know, whatever. And other people mm -hmm. want a different style of music. And today, most of us can look back and say, yeah, that was so trivial. Right. But yeah. when you're in the moment and you have these profound, deep, aesthetic intuitions that people are trampling on man it's really hard to say you know li let live let be and let be live and let live whatever that, that, yeah. that phrase is <laughs> yeah so it sounds like part of part of you know the, it's incumbent upon us to identify our aesthetic responses mm -hmm. and ide identify them in such a way that we say this probably isn't my most moral reasoning Mm -hmm. I'm going on, I'm going with my gut and then offer that as humility before the others with whom we disagree and say, this is how I feel that yep. creates a vulnerability in my position mm -hmm. and I might not win the argument. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And there might be and, real consequences. And part of the, the idea of this rekindling this image of God that's in relationship means I've got to be vulnerable and I've got to be humble anyway. Yeah. That's, I think that's right. And that relational component, you know, we're kind of using relational in the abstract, but if we sort of you, if we dive down into having real relationships with people who have different aesthetic preferences, then I often see progress getting made. You know, if, uh, what's something I don't like, um, you know, I'm not all that impressed with opera. It's not something I enjoy, but if I hang out with someone who really loves opera, and they kind of express this and they teach me about it. And I think, you know, you know, Jim's a nice guy. He likes opera. I kind of get what's behind that. It still doesn't fit me well, but 
live and let live. Let's keep opera in the world. I mean, that's, that's how I became a soccer fan. Really? <laughs> yeah, that, you almost named it. You followed the steps. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah. So having real relationships with people who have, are different is hard because you have to go against your habits, your aesthetic intuitions, your usual relational patterns, but it can be really fruitful uh, in the end. And it creates a more uh, richly textured, complex world. Mm, it does, yeah. And it seems like one of the things, if we got all our aesthetic um, uh, desires fulfilled, we'd have just something bland. Uh, <laughs> everything would match what I like. Right. <laughs> and there wouldn't be any surprises. And no, you know, uh, it yeah. would be rather boring. Yeah, I agree. Huh. You know, I get back to the Imago Dei. There were a lot of early Christians who thought that only men could have the Imago Dei, that it since God was a man, only men could could be in the image of God. That's, a, I think, an extreme example of how if you limit what it means to be made in the image of God, you're going to exclude a lot of people. So how do you have some kind of framework to understand what that image is like that is massively inclusive? Uh, and I think that's, you know, obviously I'm attracted to relational love as a concept because mm -hmm. I think it can be. But um, I suppose you could probably do it in some other concepts as well. Well, that's why we're talking to you is because you're, you're into that. <laughs> <laughs> I think we are too. It's just, you, you, you're, you, you state it much better. Yeah, you, you, you more deeply understand it. I mean, right? I go, hey, love is good. I mean, it's, but it's a little bit more to that. <laughs> yeah, it. it's, it's, you know, and, and it, it's interesting to hear your comment about only men could hold the Imago Dei, which may be still part of the problem within many uh, church traditions where women are not able to hold leadership positions. And I always thought it was interesting when we were in college and um, we went to this uh, church where our uh, college group met. And I, I liked the, I liked the preaching. I learned a lot, but you know, women weren't preaching and the only people who really seemed to teach Sunday school though, were women, unless <laughs> it were men teaching in the men's, but they were teaching the children. And I was kind of like, well, you know, their little minds are forming. Why, if women aren't allowed to preach in this and that, why are they forming the children's minds? Yeah. But, you know, I just not knowing, not having known that, about early Christians yeah. certainly makes me see how that has um, impeded the fullness of, of uh, the church, the yeah. fullness of maybe the gospel being shared around the world. Um, are, are you familiar with Cynthia Westfall uh, book, Paul and Gender? I've heard her name, but I've not read the book. Uh, yeah. so, so when when we were in college, the campus ministry, which we participated, a conservative Baptist yeah. campus ministry. Oh, okay. She was the leader. She ah, led it. I love it. There were two of them. Yeah, but she was the older one further yeah. along. Yeah. yeah. She, and uh, and I, growing up Presbyterian, I didn't know that I should be offended by her <laughs> leading. <laughs> Um, and kind of growing up with no and, background. And I, I had know. just recently been texting with her just to, you know, cause I, I picked up her book and, uh, you know, I just told her, I didn't know I was supposed to be offended that you were, you know, yeah. of the wrong gender giving leadership to this, this ministry. 
uh, which she thought was funny. But anyway, she's hopefully we'll talk with her at some point. Yeah. Um, good, good. But well, that I, began to change my my image of who who who's a leader, who can be a minister, who can be. Uh, I hate the idea of authority because it has this sound so much power and oh, power over. Yeah. Uh, but um, that it was never really an issue. And then in the churches, you find this still kind of limitate these limitations and based on 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 one sex, which just gender doesn't seem to. To yeah. gel with the gospels. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> the way Jesus. Uh, and even God, even things in the Old Testament, there are things there that you go, wow, God did that with using Deborah or who, you know. Right, right. Um, yeah. But just in seeing how Jesus um, dealt with everybody, but in particular women. Yep. Pretty amazing. You know, another way to think about this, Imago Day, in light of our discussion of women and, and other things, is to ask the question, who really counts? Mm -hmm. And in our discussion, we've kind of been saying there's been a part of the tradition that said, really, men are the ones who count and yeah. women are secondary. And, you know, also, we can let them teach the children because until the children are old enough, they don't really count either. And, you know, mm -hmm. let's, let's let them go to Africa too. Those women can be missionaries because yeah. the dark colored, colored people, they don't really count like we do either. And uh, obviously I'm, I'm doing some things that are uh, caricatures, but other things that have actual reality to them. Actual historical <laughs> <Right>. reality. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So if you, if you ask the question, who really counts and you say the Imago Dei says everybody counts, yeah. then I think you make some progress toward the kind of, um, kind of at least intuitions I get that you guys are grasping for to see that the Imago Dei is inclusive rather than mm -hmm. exclusive. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and for people to even be able to see that in God, even though um, I remember my, my theology professor saying um, God's self named God's self with Jesus saying father mm. Um, or at least that's how we understand it, because that's what has come down to us. But within God, there's not just a male. It's God encompasses our genders. Yeah. God uh, encompasses who we are, male and female, because we're made in God's image. Yeah. And so I've, 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 I've thought about that for a while and said oh yeah yeah okay yeah jesus self-named but then again i thought oh but then you know that's what came down to us yeah yeah let me be controversial again because i haven't been controversial enough i've been thinking <laughs> about this in terms of intersex and transgender transgender people hmm. like um maybe that community can teach us something about how God either transcends gender or is inclusive of all genders and non-genders and non-binary. I don't I haven't sort of formulated this in an essay yet, mm -hmm. but there might be something there that's worth working at, you know. Maybe when mm -hmm. we look at the Apostle Paul who says, in Christ there's no slave, no free, no Greek, no Jew, whatever, no male, no female. We've, yeah. I've often interpreted that as, okay, it doesn't matter if you're male or female, but maybe it doesn't matter what your gender is or non-gender. Uh, everybody is in Christ. Uh, that's, to me, pretty powerful. Yeah. In fact, you could read that passage and emphasize the binary nature. It yeah. doesn't matter if you're one 
or the other. Right. <laughs> but the point of the fray of the, 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 the list is it doesn't matter. <laughs> right. That's yeah. my point. You just said it better yeah. than I did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well and, that sounds like fun. That's a good conversation. I tend to be the timekeeper of <laughs> <Okay>. our conversations. <laughs> and in order to honor your time and the and our podcast listeners' time, I'm thinking we probably need to come to a time of wrapping up. Um, I'm not sure how long we've been going, but looking at my watch, it's been a little while. Um, and I'm just going to say, thinking about, you know, in, in, uh, Paul saying no... Um, male nor nor female it makes me think then um i'm right now i'm thinking he said that in galatians and in colossians 3 paul says in chapter uh part way through there he says clothe yourselves with love mm, nice car i like that yeah that just encompasses it all i was thinking this morning also of you know jesus uh being asked and what is the greatest commandment? And he says to love God. And then the second is like it to love yourself. And then of course you have the questioner saying, and who is my neighbor? <laughs> right, right. Um, so I guess I'm thinking about uh, how we might wrap up. What are some final thoughts you might have in this idea of relational love, God, uh, God's image in people? I don't know. You have some, yeah, I guess we'll let you kind of help take us out. (laughs) I think I'll end on uh, maybe a conceptual proposal that I think is easy to understand and people might appreciate. How's that? Sometimes, sometimes when theologians want to be, you know, kind of impress everybody, they'll throw these words around like, Eros, agape, and phileia as kinds of loves. Yeah. And um, and then they'll make claims like, well, agape is the really good one. Agape is God's love. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, that eros, well, that's that desire, that's sexual, that's whatever, that's second class. Or mm-hmm. phileia, well, you know, if, if, you, if you read the classic theologians, God can't be a friend with us because God's not like us in any way. And anyway, so they've got all kinds of ways to try to skirt around those. I want to conclude by saying we can be in God's image because God loves in three kinds of ways that we're called to love. God loves us in spite of some of the crappy things we do. God loves us because of our inherent or intrinsic worth. And God loves us alongside us in a kind of solidarity and friendship and working as a partner. And we ought to love God and others in spite of what bad things people do to us. I think God always does love to us, so we don't have to love God in, in spite of that. <laughs> in spite of what others people do to us, we have to do that. We love people because of their real value. We don't have to think everyone's a deplorable, sorry sinner headed for hell in a handbasket. There's mm-hmm. true value in creation in God's people and, and all creatures. And yeah. we can work alongside one another as co-conspirators, as partners, not only with God, but with one another to make the world a better place, usher in the kingdom, whatever language you like that's positive in terms of uh, doing good. Love that. Thank Nicely you. Nicely stated. Yeah, we should write that out. 
Well, you just said it. We can write it out later. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that'll be our new mission statement, right? Yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> I love it. Oh, Thanks so, so much for this invitation. I really enjoyed this. Before we go, what's the title okay. of the book that the you're finishing book? up right now? Right now, it's got a boring title, and it might just stick with a boring title. Oh. The title is Open and Relational Theology, an Introduction. <laughs> <laughs> okay keep working on the title uh, so. <laughs> we'll look forward to it okay we really thank you for coming and joining with us today on our not holier than you podcast yeah, thank you so much tom it's good to see you thanks for your friendship yes, yeah thank thanks you. for your friendship carl and craig see you later All yes right. thank you blessings blessings good night good night good night All right. Well, hey, thank you for uh, listening to our conversation. Not holier than you. <laughs> uh, and boy, we really like that title because I think it's true. Correct. <laughs> I thought you have to say it so quickly. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I know I'm not holier than anybody else. Oh, I thought else you meant here. me. Okay. No, no, no. So I'm talking to, about myself. Uh, so we're a couple of pastors. Yep. We pastor a small congregation of Anabaptist Mennonites here in, in Idaho. Meridian, Idaho. Meridian, Idaho. Yep. We're just learning this stuff and trying to figure it out along with you. So if you if we say something that's heretical or horrible or you think we're just wrong, that's okay. We probably we might be. We're learning as we go. Well, I don't think we're heretical in no. any way, but um, <laughs> I try a little. Oh, okay. Well, anyway, um, we are glad that you joined us, and we hope that you'll join us again. Great. All right. See ya. Thank you. Bye. Bye.